am I doing this to get it right? Mm. Or am I doing it as a journey of discovery? If you're doing it to get it right, at some point you think, oh, I'm getting it right now. I've got it right. Mm. And you think that there's no more to do. No, I don't need to rehearse this again. Oh, why Mm. are we doing this again? I've got it right. But if you're doing it as a journey of discovery, that you're looking to find something, you're actually actively seeking to find something new in it, something new that your body feels, some other little way to express that movement, express that music, to connect with somebody with your eyes. It only has to be a tiny little thing, but it means that you're looking for that thing all the way through, wondering what it's going to be today. And maybe you'll walk off and there wasn't anything, but it meant you were always looking. Hello, and welcome to the podcast for ballerinas, adult ballerinas, parents of ballerinas, and everyone in between. I'm your host, Georgia Canning, also known as the Balanced Ballerina, and it's my mission to break down the elitist barriers often associated with ballet. Through my own studios and ballet-related businesses, I'm all about providing space and content for people from all walks of life to experience and enjoy the many benefits of ballet. Each month, I'll bring you industry leaders and thought-provoking guests who will hopefully inspire you to lead a more balanced life, full of grace, with a little grit. Today's episode is with my good friend, Joseph Brown. Joseph's professional career began as a soloist with the Australian Ballet in 1994 before joining Sydney Dance Company in 1997. Then Joseph's career pivoted towards acting when he took on the role of Johnny Castle in the original stage adaptation of Dirty Dancing, which toured throughout Australia and New Zealand. He was even part of the opening on London's West End and toured throughout the United States as part of the pre-Broadway tour, completing 1,500 plus shows over four and a half years. Incredible. Joseph then returned to Australia to take on the role of Patrick in the multi-Logie award-winning series Dance Academy. Dale Canning on Home and Away... Orctus, I think I'm saying that correct, in Spartacus, Gods of the Arena, and Daniel in Sam's Story before playing Matt Turner for over two years on the beloved Aussie drama Neighbours. This is why his face might be familiar to many of you. In fact, when I met up with Joseph for our interview in Sydney a couple of months ago, I posted a photo of us on social media and very quickly got a text from my partner saying, Why are you hanging out with Matt Turner, the cop from Neighbours? Which was pretty funny. Now, Joseph also has many writing and producing credits for various webisodes, ABC TV documentaries, and he was a sitting member of the New South Wales Ministry of the Arts Dance Board. He is one talented and exceptional artist with brilliant professionalism in dance and business. Speaking of business, Joseph is now the Relations and Development Director at one of my favourite dance brands ever, MDM. And this is how we became friends. In fact, he is the voice behind the MDM sponsorship ads that you may have heard in previous episodes. And just for fun, I'm actually going to play it again for this episode. Not because MDM is sponsoring this episode or Joseph's for my chat, but because I just love Joseph, the MDM team, and all their products. 
We have a really long but super interesting chat that I'm sure many of you will enjoy. So let's get straight into it. The Balanced Ballerinas podcast is proudly supported by MDM Dancewear, the company that has developed the world's most advanced footwear for dance. If you're wanting to be your best or perhaps one of the very best, make sure you've tried MDM for ballet, contemporary or jazz. MDM, engineered for expression. You ready to go? I'm ready to go. Bye. <laughs> and that was Joseph Brown on the Balanced Ballerinas podcast. <laughs> In and out. <laughs> Hi, Joseph. How are you? Hello, George. I'm well, thank you. It's so weird whenever I say that because we've already had like coffee downstairs for about an hour and a half with my mum. <laughs> but I'm glad you're good. I have been meaning to get you on the podcast actually for such a long time because over the years we've struck up a friendship and I just think that you have so much knowledge and wisdom to share with everyone. So thanks so much for meeting me. Wow, that was really lovely. Thank you. Um, It's great to be here. Thank you, Georgia. I'm glad. Well, I wanted to share, first of all, I'd like to start with everyone's story. Mm. I've got a couple of notes here. I did do a little bit of research last night. Oh, dear. Things I already knew, though. But um, you started um, very late in your training Hmm. in ballet specifically. But can you share with the audience how you ended up first at McDonald College? Yeah, so basically um, I had no idea what I wanted to do with my life. Um, I was about 14 or 15 when breakdancing started um, back in the 80s. (laughs) Yes. And I I was at a public school on the sort of um, outer out of reaches of Sydney and I got involved in the breakdancing craze and that's the first real dancing that really happened at the schools that I was at. The school that I was at unfortunately didn't offer anything really in the way of arts. Um, it was a desert for the arts um, which was really sad and breakdancing came along and that, that for some reason did take off at this boys public school, this very rugby orientated um, boys public school. And I got involved in breakdancing and my friends got involved in breakdancing and we loved it and that was great. And then for some reason that the, the girls' high school was across the train tracks. <laughs> and <laughs> because we got involved in that and the girls got involved with that as well, then they asked us, would you be interested in coming and doing a couple of plays, some plays over at the girls' school? And I was like, oh, wow, okay. Um, yeah, basically I really wanted to kiss one of these girls. So and you're like, I'll go. <laughs> yeah, and that's what sort of drew me and particularly a friend. And then they asked us, hey, would you like to come and do a Friday night jazz class? And sort of sort of went like that, and it sort of had this sort of slow progression over about a year, year and a half. So I never really fell in love with the idea of performing at the time. I was a very, very nervous performer. I felt very uncomfortable on stage. But what I did begin to love was the people that I was around. I loved that they were, um, it was an environment where, you know, difference was celebrated and that you could be a little bit unique. You could be a little quirky and idiosyncratic and people loved it. And they, they found ways to use that rather than quashing that and saying, oh, you're different, you're weird. And I like many people I got bullied at school I was a little bit quirky a little bit different at the time and so I had my fair share of bullying I mean everyone got bullied everyone everyone was a little bit different in some way so everyone got bullied somehow but I really found that frustrating and I didn't like it um yeah and then uh and then I got to sort of the end of year 10 and really had very little idea of what I wanted to do with my life other than this idea of maybe wanting to become an actor and I looked up 
placed, my parents were insistent that I did, did year 11 and 12, and I found uh, the McDonald College of the Arts. And I went and auditioned for them, and even though I'd done very little dance, um, I had the right physical proportions. The college was still relatively new at that time, and I think being a boy helped, because they Definitely. were obviously, yeah, obviously. So a lot of this is luck, and a lot of this is just opportunity. Um, so I got into the McDonald College, and thinking I wanted to become an actor, but within about three months to six months, I'd absolutely fallen in love with classical ballet. I'd never seen a classical ballet up until that point. Never even really watched a classical ballet class. Um, I'd only done the jazz, the jazz classes. But had you been to the ballet? No, I hadn't even been to the ballet. So Had, hadn't even seen a ballet on TV at this point. The first ballet I saw was at the McDonald College when I was in year 11. And it was Giselle with Kelvin Coe and Christine Walsh on TV. And wow. it blew me away. Yeah. I, honestly, I, was one of the, I had one of those epiphany moments where I was like, oh, my God, you can tell a story with just movement? Like, that's what it was for me. It was like I was just this wide-eyed, I'd just never seen anything like it. I couldn't mm. believe you could tell this beautiful, romantic, interesting story with just movement. And um, and that really, yeah, it was. It was an epiphany. It was just eye-opening experience. And within about six months, three to six months, I'd fallen in love with classical ballet. And specifically, I think I fell in love with... Um, Again, the people that I was working with, the, the, the young dancers there, they just had a really clear vision of what they wanted to do with their lives and how they were going to get there. And as I said, I was a bit of a latchkey kid. My parents were divorced. I was going from home to home. They would come home late. And I'm not bagging my parents. My parents are fantastic parents and full of love. And my house was full of love. But I spent a lot of time by myself and there was a lot of freedom. I spent a lot yeah. of time down the bush growing up, et cetera, et cetera. And... All of it, but I had very little direction. And all of a sudden, I met these people that had a very clear sense of what they wanted to do with their life and how they were going to get there, what that ladder was. And um, I just fell in love with that. It was like a, a virus that got inside me. I was like, yes, that's, that's what I want. And I rode that for, you know, the next probably half decade, decade before I started to create a new vision that was more clearly my own and unique. But, um, yeah, that took me into full-time after a year of full-time after the McDonald College and then into the Australian Ballet School, two years at the Australian Ballet School and into the company. Yes, I was going to say, so did you finish um, grade 12 at McDonald College? Yeah. And then you went into the Australian Ballet School? Then I did a year of full-time. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'd only done two years of ballet. So the, Isn't that crazy? <laughs> the Australian Ballet like, School didn't take me after just two years of ballet. Um, so and I, and I feel like we should pause for a second and like let people know that that's not normal. Like that's not normal. That's not the norm. No, you can't not. pick up ballet. Not everyone can pick up ballet at that age. And, no, and I, I, I was make it a career. I was naturally flexible. Yeah, I had. Na- I have naturally uh, the right type of body shape. Um, I had good muscle tone. Um, uh, you know, my feet can point. Uh, they actually do point, um, which possibly they wouldn't. Um, I had a really good jump. I was actually a state long jumper, so I had a really naturally good jump. I had a natural affinity for partnering work, um, which I really loved, and I always loved partnering work and loved creating those rapports. And I loved the idea of theatre and, and acting still, so I, the idea of storytelling. So I guess you work with your strengths and mm. then you build up on your weaknesses. So I had my weaknesses for sure. And I just had to keep working on that, on that foundational technique, foundational technique, which is why I'm always talking to people about work on your foundational technique, work on your foundational technique. It's so important. That's what's going to give you the longest career. Yeah. Um, you'll have a whole bunch of other strengths, but mm-hmm. work on that foundational technique. Really important. Um, yeah, and I was a boy, so I was lucky. Um, I, it, that gave me opportunity. There weren't so many boys, so the competition was far less. I, I can't say that it would work nowadays, and I can't say that it would 
certainly wouldn't work for girls even then because the competition was much harder. Yeah. So that's luck. Yes, yeah. I feel like it was kind of important to say that because sometimes I, I mean, teaching adult ballet, I sometimes get, very rarely, but I do get a question like, how late can you, you know, start yeah. if you want a career, you know? And I'm like, oh, if you're asking me and you're however old you are, mm. you're pretty late. <laughs> and it depends on how you define career as well. True. You know, how do you define how do you define that? That's if, true. If you're going to define it within a really narrow band, mm. then sure, there probably is some cutoff. But if you're going to open open that up, then it becomes a little bit more flexible. Mm. And so, from Aussie Ballet School, you ended up you were a soloist at Australian Ballet in soloist 1994. Yeah. So I yeah. So I worked really hard. I tended to be the first one in and the last one out, and yeah. just had that kind of mentality. I think when you come late. Um, you feel like you have something to prove. Got a lot of prove. Got a lot of <laughs> got catching a chip up. on your shoulder. A chip on my shoulder, like you wouldn't believe. Um, and I did have a chip on my shoulder because you know. And my defense mechanism for that, chip, for feeling very insecure, was that I became quite aloof and sort of a little bit hard to know, and maybe even came across as being arrogant, which actually it was the complete opposite. I was just incredibly insecure. It's a cliche story. Makes sense. Total cliche story. Um, and yeah, that did give me a chip on my shoulder, but it made me work really hard. And I probably was naturally competitive as well, because um, I come from much more of a sports background. So that really sort of pushed me. And and I think there was a lot of guilt in there as well, because my parents, um, we didn't come from a wealthy background, and um, they were having to obviously pay first for the McDonald College. Um, and I, th I therefore had, even though I was working part-time at Luna Park and um, then at Theo's <laughs> Theo's um, bottle shop. And then when I got to the Australian Ballet School, I was working at, um, what was it? It was Fast Eddie's, which was a 24 hour restaurant. And I'd finish on a Friday night at the ballet school. And then I'd go and work from eight o'clock to six o'clock in the morning at Fast Eddie's. Wow. And then at six o'clock, I'd go and have a sleep outside the Australian Ballet School <laughs> doors, wait for them to open them up. And then I'd go and do a class or two at the Australian Ballet School, half asleep, go home, sleep, come back into Fast Eddie's at, on a Saturday night and do a kind of a six to 12 or a six to one o'clock shift. And that's how I sort of got myself through. But my parents were also putting in money and I needed to be able to rationalize and justify yeah. that, that investment. Um, which at the time, looking back, I probably think they now go, God, I wish we didn't, that you didn't have, feel that. Like they're like, God, you shouldn't have felt that. Just, we wanted to do it for you, but I felt this kind of weight, weight of responsibility and that I had to make it, had to. Yeah. I think it's really important to share those stories though too, because I, I know that I love hearing them because I was incredibly sheltered. Like mm. when I went down to Aussie Valley School, like my parents, they paid for everything and yeah. I didn't have to get a job. And I definitely, you know, they said, this is your limit for groceries yeah. and uh, <laughs> and you have to, you know, uh, live, you know, in your means. And, yeah. and they taught me about budgeting, mm. but I certainly didn't have to do anything like mm. that. So I, I always... Mm. I always find those stories really fascinating and very <laughs> admirable. <laughs> I remember this one weekend, my mate and I, we basically, because we were in this um, apartment together, and we basically ate scones. We ate scones to get through the weekend because we didn't have any money. We had to wait for the banks to open on Monday. So and what we Monday, had was flour. Mom, Dad, could you put $50 in my account? <laughs> oh, that's so funny. Oh, it's funny now. <laughs> and then I wanted to ask you, um, if you don't mind me asking, so what made you then jump ship to Sydney Dance Company? Well, there was an interim period here. So, um, and this is probably a lot to do, it's, it's, a, it's a lot to do with what I'm doing now um, to some degree. 
but you know, I ended up getting some injuries by, I'd been at the ballet for about six years. And you know, you start to get niggling injuries. But one of the biggest ones I had was a chronic tendonitis, a chronic, a chronic Achilles tendonitis. And they were talking about surgery. And I hadn't had any time off. I'd, I was like, a machine i just never i never had a broken bone i never had anything pulled that actually took me off off and this one did and i missed a killian quadruple bill which was just absolutely devastating for me at the time because i loved yuri killian and um yeah and so i i ended up i had a friend that was working in a contemporary dance company in turkey he was a choreographer and he just said why don't you come over here and spend six months just spend six months as a sort of sabbatical rather than because they were talking about potentially surgery at that time and i just the idea of having six months off and just sitting around and doing nothing or having surgery i just couldn't fathom i just couldn't get my head unimaginable unimaginable for me and i just went i just couldn't imagine sitting still and i just thought look maybe if i go over there and work for six months maybe i can heal it just doing something different where i'm not doing this sort of high-end um, jumps and and the pressure that you put on at the at the Australian Ballet, mm. and I so I did. I took myself over there for six months, but six months turned into thirteen months because I ended up really loving the experience of working in this contemporary dance company. It was the first contemporary dance company that Turkey had ever had. It was based in Ankara, um, in the in the capital, which is in central Anatolia. Um, it was in sort of the basement of the ballet and opera building, and there was just this small contemporary dance company of about. 12 to 14 dancers. Of course, and the contemporary company was in like the basement. <laughs> it was. It was in the basement. It was, <laughs> it was so new. It was only four years old yep. at the time. It's still going to this day now. It's based in Ist- Istanbul now. And uh, yeah, and I fell in love with contemporary dance there. I just, I'd, I'd done contemporary dance, you sort of the contemporary dance at the at the ballet, like in the middle, somewhat elevated and the Yuri Killian works, etc. But um, nothing like I was doing there, completely different kind of movement um, I loved how my body felt once I started to relax um, my Achilles tendonitis actually cleared up um, I was much more grounded much more into the floor and I just decided that I couldn't go back I couldn't go back to the ballet and it just it felt like okay this was the beginning of a new and I'd, I'd fallen in love with Nacho Duato I did um, Jardi Tancat which was a barefoot piece that the ballet did for the first time. I think it was back in 1993. And I was first cast in that, and I absolutely loved that ballet. And at that point, I was thinking, do I try and go over to Spain and contact Nacho Eduardo and see if he'll be, would he be interested in me as a dancer? Um, But I'd also fallen in love with Graham Murphy's work because he'd done Nutcracker in 1994 on the ballet. I think it was 94 or 93. And I'd fallen in love with his storytelling, him taking this kind of traditional European aristocratic story and turning it into something uniquely Australian. I absolutely loved that. Yeah. And uh, I just found that thrilling intellectually I was just and artistically. I was just like, oh, my God, how did you do that? It was amazing. Um, even if you didn't love the ballet, everything about the ballet, just conceptually, it is phenomenal work. And so I ended up calling Graham on the phone from Turkey. I think I spoke to him. He was out at dinner. Mm. And I just said, uh, Graham... I'd really be interested in coming back and I've fallen in love with contemporary dance and you know you know I love your work and I would love to be able to join the company would you be interested and he was interested and so I was fortunate enough to be able to go back and join Sydney Dance Company when I came back to Australia. So then you returned and you were in Sydney Dance Company how long were you there for? Sydney Dance Company for seven years but I did take about six or seven months off to do a musical which 
this is what I do. <laughs> yeah. So I took time off to do a musical. It was another sabbatical um, to kind of sabbaticals that turn into these, a new these sabbaticals like that turn into career. new careers. Exactly. I sort of dipped my toe in. So I took some time off again because I had these niggly, niggling injuries, which you do as a dancer, and I didn't want them to turn into something more serious. Yeah. So I took some time off, but again, I didn't want to just take time off and not work. Um, again, that idea of just sitting around not doing anything. I, I saw other dancers doing that and they all seem to be going slightly insane to yeah. me. As dancers will tell you, they just go insane when they're just injured. There's nothing worse. And um, so I took time off to do um, musical Man of La Mancha with um, Anthony Waller and Caroline O'Connor at the time. It was only a really small role, um, which was perfect because I didn't want anything big. I just wanted something really small, background, just to heal some injuries, but I still wanted to be working and I wanted to experience something new. And I fell in love with musical theatre this time. So I just fell in love with being around actors and dancers and singers and they're all doing it to a high degree. Yeah. Um, and I just, I really loved being around again, being around those people. And uh, yeah, and then I went back to Sydney Dance Company, but then, shall I go on? Yeah, yeah. But then the offer, an offer came to me to audition for Dirty Dancing, the classic story yes. on stage. Um, I was going to get there. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I so, was going to say, so is this how Dirty Dancing came about? Yeah, yeah. so that was the, the the forerunner to why I then took Dirty Dancing. So then I'd been with Sydney Dance Company for seven years. And um, and while things were going well, and I, I was getting good work to do, and um, I enjoyed company life, I think, you know, you're always looking, there's a part of you, well, there was a part of me anyway. And maybe because I hadn't been brought up with dance, there was always a part of me that was always interested in the other new the next what else can i do yeah. where else can i sort of push um what what's going to make me feel uncomfortable now that i should probably go go towards and then it became singing and dancing and acting yeah. using my voice i really wanted to use my voice well you originally joined mcdonald college originally because you were interested in acting yeah so isn't it funny how you had your dance career and then you've gone back to acting yeah it is and it's kind of i guess sort of full circle but it's that it's that idea for me it's just storytelling it's like it's all just storytelling and it's like how do you tell the story yeah you know and you've got to find the right medium to tell stories and it's just exploring that i love playing guitar and i love singing um because mm. again it's just a different kind of storytelling so you were the original Johnny Castle in Dirty Dancing. <laughs> yeah. Um, the, the well, not the original, but the original stage yes, production. Yes. yes, the classic story on stage. Classic story. Yes, that's what it's titled. But um, you did that in Australia, in New Zealand, and London's West End. Um, just tell me about that experience. Like, what was it like being part of part of the stage show? Yeah. Well, so this was amazing experience because um, it had never been done as a stage production before, and for for various reasons the 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 main writer um met um kevin jacobson in new york he saw a workshop of it that they were putting together and he said i would love you to come and do this in australia and so they brought it out and they produced it in australia for the first time and it went through a couple of sort of iterations and sort of evolved over the period mm. um but yeah it became it became really popular i think um i can't remember how popular it was in australia but it became really popular we did a year and a half run through Australia and New Zealand. Um, and then I think partly because I had a British passport, they asked me if I'd be interested in coming and doing the West End production and auditioning for the West End production. And so a couple of the cast went over um, there and we auditioned and got the West End production. So there was about three Australians that ended up going over there and doing that. 
And and that was amazing. And that was I ended up doing that for about two years on the West End. So I'm now up to about three and a half years of doing the one show, eight eight performances a week. This was just grueling. This was just absolutely amazing. But and it was a different director now that we did in um, in London, and uh, and it broke pre pre box office sales records um, on the West End, which was just phenomenal. I wow. think it was like sold out for like eight months in advance at the time when we opened. And I think it ran, ended up running for about five or seven years or something. Yeah. And then they're still touring it around. They still do touring productions of it um, over there. And then, then they asked me if I wanted to come and do the American pre-Broadway production. So I then came over and got the pre-Broadway production. So we started in Chicago did Chicago for six months or I think six months and then Boston and then LA and wow. for, for another year. Yeah. So I ended up doing it for about about four and a half years and over 1,500 shows. Um, Interesting. <laughs> did you ever get sick of playing the role? Oh, God, yes. Yeah, yeah this was the hardest thing. Yeah. This, was the most, this was the most difficult thing ever. How do, the question, yeah, how, how do, do you, you keep it yeah. fresh yeah. is... Was for all, a new was audience. Parent, and yeah, yeah, for a new audience. And partly remembering it that it's a new audience is mm. the most important thing. But I remember, I, I, I tell this story sometimes, I distinctly remember sitting, it was, we were doing, it was the third week of previews in Sydney. So we hadn't even opened the show yet. And I'd come from the Australian Ballet where you only ever do a three-week production. And at Sydney Dance Company, you might do a six-week production occasionally. I'd never done anything more than six weeks. Uh, except for the Man of the Mancha, I did do Man of Lan- Man of the Mancha, but that was a small role. And all of a sudden, I'm doing this role, and I, I used to take myself into this um, this stairwell mm. um, before the show, and I would sit myself in exactly the same place in this stairwell. There was nothing else in the stairwell, you know, grey stairwell. Yeah. And it was before uh, Sydney had opened, and I already went, "Oh my God, I'm done." <laughs> I'm over this. <laughs> it's three weeks. That's as long as I'm used to having to do something. Yeah. And I just went, how did I end up doing it for four and a half years when I can mm. remember distinctly remember going, wow, I'm done. But you end up teaching yourself um, how to keep something how to keep something fresh. And there was a period in London of about two weeks where I didn't. And it, I went into like this automatic mode. And I feel really bad about those two weeks. Um, I hope the audiences didn't notice too much. But, you know, I'm sure got, they've gotten over it. Yeah, well, not only that, but you've got this rest of this amazing cast yeah, of music. Yeah. that you know, It's not just all about you. So you've got this phenomenal cast around you that are doing incredible stuff. Um, but I did go into an automatic mode for two weeks because I was desperate to try to conserve energy and desperate to try to maintain my, you know, mentally, mental well-being. And uh, it ended up being the worst two weeks of my performing career it was the hardest slog ever there's nothing worse than going into automatic and i always say don't go into automatic you think it's going to save you and it will kill you um the best thing you can do is keep finding ways to make it fresh so i would take myself into this stairwell and every day before the show i had to i would challenge myself to find something new that i had not seen before and I would have to look around that stairwell and find one little grey dot, one little piece of chewing gum, one scratch, completely bare, stairwell, bare barren yeah. thing, find a little scratch on the thing that I had not noticed. Look for that one thing that you hadn't noticed. Now take that onto stage and find one thing you haven't noticed, a flick of the eye, something in the voice that changes, a pitch that you, you hear something new in the music, something somebody's moving or in a slightly different position than they've been before. And if you can find that one little key that opens up the door to the whole thing being fresh for you. 
It just you just got to find that one little opening, mm. and then the whole thing you go. This is new. This is now. This has never happened before. And then you're listening. You're constantly listening, actively listening, and looking um, f- for those little fresh moments. And that that just makes everything come alive. It's a really important lesson because I find. I mean, a lot of people will never experience that elite level of performance, but what we could relate it back to as a student is sometimes, you know, you're teaching, say, a competition routine and the students, Mm. by the time they've done it, maybe for the 25th time only, um, they're looking bored and they're Mm. looking stale Mm. and you try and pep talk them up. And sometimes I use musicals as as an example because it's a really good example. You know, if you're in Lion King, you've been doing that for 10 years. Do do you know (laughs) what I mean? So, so, um, and you try and explain that. And so that's like a really valuable lesson. Mm. And and I think a lot of little, little dancers will, um, will get a lot from that. But I think the difference too is it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a mentality of am I doing this to get it right mm. or am I doing it as a journey of discovery? If you're doing it to get it right, at some point you think, oh, I'm getting it right now. I've got it right. Mm. And you think that there's no more to do. No, I don't need to rehearse this again. Oh, mm. why are we doing this again? I've got it right. But if you're doing it as a journey of discovery, that you're looking to find something, you're actually actively seeking to find something new in it, something new that your body feels, some other little way to express that movement, express that music, to connect with somebody with your eyes. It only has to be a tiny little thing, but it means that you're looking for that thing all the way through, wondering what it's going to be today. And maybe you'll walk off and there wasn't anything, but it meant you were always looking. It might take you another week before you find something again. It's like looking for gold dust. Yeah. You know, you just keep searching and searching and the search becomes the thing that keeps it fresh and become thing that become, makes it interesting. Keeps you looking alive on stage. Keeps you looking alive on stage because you're active. You're mm. active internally, not just externally. And so did Neighbours and Dance Academy come after Dirty Dancing? Yes. So your character on Neighbours was Matt Turner? Yeah. So, <laughs> so, so tell me, how, how did we end up on TV yeah, screens? Yeah. So, um, well, it, became, it was Dance Academy first. Yeah. So I finished in L.A. Um, I finished in L.A. with Dirty Dancing. And I had um, – there, there are two L.A. stories. There is the success story and then there is the total failure story. And you either have one or the other. I had the total failure story in okay. L.A. So I came off four and a half years of doing the same role. And at the time... Trying to stay alive. <laughs> you're trying to stay alive. And at the time, I was completely burnt out. And my gut was like... And I'd always had this fire in my belly. I'd always felt this real fire and passion yeah. in my belly. And now it felt like ash. It felt like there was just nothing there. It was like coal. That's what it felt like. Because you'd no, been spending too much time in stairwells looking for chewing gum. That's Oh, why. my God. I was just burnt out. <laughs> I'd just been giving and giving and giving my energy. And I was just so... My body was all drawn. And I was just completely burnt out. And off the back of that however off the back of that LA experience and performing in LA I got some really serious interest from people that wanted me to come and audition and I got picked up an agent and and so I was like oh wow so we decided we were going to stay in LA for another nine months I'm going to roll with it I'm going to see if I can turn this into Mm. something but two things that I wasn't aware of a I wasn't aware of how burnt out I was that I just my passion had gone and the other thing is I wasn't aware of how a character, when you do a character for four and a half years, and I hadn't prepared myself coming out of it, so I hadn't been doing audition preparation and looking at other scripts and working with other scripts. Um, so a whole lot of stuff that I should have done that I didn't. And, um, I, and that was because I was so tired, I just couldn't get motivated to yeah. do anything. And I didn't realise how that character of Pat, Johnny, Johnny Castle, yeah. I was going to say Patrick Swayze, uh, like, <laughs> 
<laughs> okay, but it is. It's sort of that, yeah. that kind of Patrick Swayze, Johnny Castle character had taken in, over, taken you. over, and inhabited. And everything that I did, I was doing through this kind of medium of Johnny Castle. It was kind of like this clothes, this sort of skin that I'd put on, and everything was coming through that. And it took me about a year before I even became aware of that, yeah. that that was there. And then I had to find a way to sort of slough it off, to get rid of it, to, you didn't to know, take that off. You didn't know where Johnny, Johnny Castle started and, and Joseph, Joseph Brown, Brown began. Exactly. Yeah. JC finished and yep. JB began. And I just, <laughs> there was just BC and it just, it just followed straight through. Interesting. No. Yeah. I mean, it makes complete sense. It's such a long time to play uh, specifically one character it's not like you were in a show where you're playing me. different characters because there's some shows where people are part of and they move around and they yeah. play different characters but you were the same character <laughs> like <laughs> keep that, saying it like that georgia that helps <laughs> because me just thinking the about same it, character. i'm exhausted just thinking about it that's why i keep saying it like <laughs> that because it's in, that's crazy yeah so so that was a big problem and so i ended up having this really fantastic experience but career-wise, a bad experience yeah. in the sense that um, I just went in doing really bad auditions. I got some really great parts that I was auditioning for, but I did them really badly. Mm. And uh, so we ended up spending nine months there. Um, had a really great time in LA, though. And then um, and then I auditioned for the uh, ABC Dance Academy, asked me to lay down a, an audition on video and send it back to Australia. Yep. And I did. And I got that role. And, and so this for Dance Academy. This was yep. for Dance Academy. And so that brought me back to Australia. And so for the first couple of months, I was actually traveling back to Australia to film for four days. And do they put all my scenes into the last four days of the month. Mm. And then I fly back to LA and spend 26, 25 days there. And fly back to Australia and do four or five days of scenes for Dance Academy. And I did that. And then we ended up moving back to Australia. And then I was able to film that because that went for about six months, I think, um, that whole first season that they were filming. And then that went on to a little bit of, uh, I think I did a bit of Home and Away and then uh, Spartacus, Gods of the Arena, which took me over to New Zealand for three months filming over there for the prequel for that, which was a, an American show. And then Neighbours came along. And uh, yeah, I ended, I ended up spending the next two years on Neighbours. Mm. Um, yeah. What was that experience like? It was fantastic. I really enjoyed doing Neighbours. Um, I wish it had gone on a little bit longer, to be honest, but they killed my character off. I got hit by a car. Did you? Yeah, well, there was I a was love going, interest that they needed to yep. get together. And well, I was, I, was going to, I was going to ask how, how it ended because I actually Badly. must admit I have never watched Neighbours or Home and Away. Yeah. I don't know. I just It was never on, on TV in my family, but I think I'm the only family that never watched that show. Yeah. So I was going to ask you, I was like, what was your character like? There's probably um, people listening that are like, Georgia, Come on, yeah. how did you not know? <laughs> yeah. No, he, yeah. he was well, he was a very different character from me because mm. obviously I'm a left handed vegetarian um, ballet dancer, ex ballet dancer, and <laughs> Matt Turner was from um, Mount Isa, a policeman, a sort of meat and three veg policeman, bit of the life of the party, supposed to be as well, but sort of duty, responsibility, and I was, and, and very structured. He was in that a way. good old fashioned basic Australian. He was, he was, and yeah. um, and he was lovely to play. And I uh, had a really nice family, uh, you know, all the dramas that you have on Neighbours, of course, but a really nice family, lovely wife. And um, yeah, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> who ended up getting together with, you know, one of my... Uh, so they killed you off for your TV wife to get with someone else, is that what yeah. happened? Oh, that's a bit sad. Harsh. That's really harsh. Burn. <laughs> <laughs> that's so funny. Rest in peace, Matt Turner. But you are married in real life. I am married in real life. Two kids. Yeah. Yes. And so, um, 
absolutely uh, nothing like your uh, TV TV life then. <laughs> no, and look, and look, and, and, and one of the reasons because um, now, am I allowed to talk about what I do now? You of just course. Briefly? So we, I hadn't. Even, I, it's in my notes. I'm just gradually working I'll, I'll up let, to I'll it. I'll let you get Joseph. gradually get up no, to no, it. No, no, no. Go gonna, for I, it. No, I was just gonna. I was just gonna segue talk about because after neighbours, basically, um, a lot of the stuff that I. I was um, auditioning for and um, looking at were kind of musicals after that because I think I was a little bit pigeonholed into musicals and being musical theatre even though I really hadn't done that many musicals I'd only done three musicals um, um, Officer and a Gentleman was the other one and uh, but the idea of doing musicals even though I love musicals um, the idea of doing musicals where you have to travel and be away from like I didn't want to have to move my kids again. They were now mm. at school. We were now settled. We moved back from Melbourne because, you know, my, my my daughter, my son was born when we were in Perth. You know, I think it was only eight days after he was born we had to put him on a plane and bring him back to Sydney. And then when he was about a month old, we had to take him to New Zealand. And then he was six months old, and we took him to um, London. And then my daughter was born in London, and we moved her around to Chicago, Boston, and L.A. while she was only, you know, one and two years old. We got back, and then we moved down to Melbourne, and we stayed down there for three years. And then we moved back, and now they were at schools, and they were transferring schools again. So we just got back to Sydney. It was just like, okay, that's it. You wanted some stability. We need some stability. So we're not going to audition or do the musical theatre thing anymore um and so that just left me um potentially open to doing any acting roles that came up but they not much was coming up and then um a good friend of mine tim heathcote who um <laughs> used to date my wife at sydney dance company oh my and, gosh really? and I, oh yeah small world and i was fortunate enough to dance with his beautiful wife simone goldsmith who was a principal with the australian ballet and um and Tim and I were talking together one day and he said, and he was telling me about MDM and my wife had actually worked for MDM down in, when we were in Melbourne for two years, because she, yeah. she did a, a business diploma when she was at Sydney Dance Company. My wife was a dancer with Sydney Dance Company and beautiful dancer, incredible. And, uh, and so I knew the company well, I knew what they were trying to do, I knew what Tim, Tim and Simone were wanting to achieve. And then he was talking about wanting to sort of change models and expand and you know create a, a more of a global company. And he just asked me if I'd be interested in coming aboard. And, and I just, it was just, again, it was just so different to anything I'd done. Mm. And I just, I was really excited by it. And I continue to be really excited by it. And it is, it's, I've been there for four years now, um, the Relations and Development Director at MDM. And it's just a great company. It's a great bunch of people to work with. Tim and Simone are amazing to work with. It, they're doing something really innovative. Um, I don't want to turn this into a plug, but that's no, why. No, no, but I think it's really I, important. Yeah, that's why I'm... And again, it's, it's, it's still in dance. I feel like I'm bringing a whole bunch of knowledge that I have about the industry um, to, to, to what I'm doing now and what I'm able to do now. And, and while also drawing on a whole bunch of stuff that I've learned about our industry to be hopefully be able to change it a little bit and yeah. make it a little bit better and create a better conversation. Well, MDM feels very progressive about health and well-being within oh. the dance world and I think that's why I personally gravitate towards it mm. and that's why our friendship started so long ago when, yeah. when you first um, you know came knocking on my door and because you know MDM has such a grassroots get into the studios and and talk to the dance teachers and the students and the parents about the health and well-being of their feet and when you introduced me to the shoe I was like wow yeah. like as I tell people because it's very hard to sometimes explain to someone who's not in the dance world why this shoe which looks relatively similar to you know another one why it's different and why yeah. it's so much better and i'm sort of like well 
it's kind of like the Birkenstocks of the ballet world. Do you know what <laughs> yeah, I mean? Yeah. That's the easiest way. And people go, yeah. oh, gotcha. You know, yeah. you can buy a pair of Havianas yeah. or you can buy Birkenstocks, yeah. which are much better for your feet. Yeah. The idea That's is, my selling point. Yeah, I love it. I love it. I'm go- <laughs> I'll be stealing that. Yeah. Um, the, the idea is that small changes can make big differences over time. Yeah. It's the butterfly effect. You know, the butterfly that flaps its wings off the coast of, you know, Tokyo causes a tsunami down off the coast of South America or whatever, that, that these small changes can have big changes over time. And that's exactly what MDM, it's it's an innovation. And there is there is actually very little innovation in dance. Mm. Like we were just looking at, we, we just released an article on innovations in dance. And when you look at the innovations in dance over time, whether it be the, f- the first dancer that chopped off the heel off the shoe to create the ballet flat, you know, because they wanted more ballon and, you know, to better faster footwork or the point shoe in Marie Taglioni and, um, or then, you know, Benish notation and Laban notation and things like that. I mean, uh, the leotard, you know, was created for, to move better and for injury, um, for injury reasons. Like, but when you look down, there's not that many in- innovations really. Um, there are innovations in, in movement styles, modern dance, obviously, um, but there's not that many innovations in the products that we use. No. Um, and so this is a real innovation. Yeah. It's something that doesn't come along that often and it's really unique and it's now becoming something that the globe, the whole of the planet are starting to recognise and I love that it started in Australia. Yeah. I love that with so little innovation that happens particularly in footwear for dance and I mean you only have to look at what Nike did back in the 60s and early 70s when they started experimenting with polyurethane for pronation, supination, arch support and impact protection. They revolutionised that industry. No one's done that in dance. No. And, and I mean, I'm what, not saying... That's what, Tim, yeah. that's what Tim has really... That's what he's really done. That's yeah. where I put him in the pantheon of things that are happening. Yeah. And when we look back at the history, when the history of dance is written, I really believe that's where we'll see Tim and we will see the dance based support and what he's doing with MDM. Definitely. And I, and I mean, I'm not comparing dance as a sport, but it's physical and there's so much innovation going on in athletics and sport and, you know, shoes are constantly being updated. And yet we have this canvas ballet flat, which has been the same for hundreds of years and no one's done anything. And so when I came across MDM shoes, I was like, this really is sounding like a plug. We should let people know. No one is paying me to say this. Like, really, like besides MDM coming on board for our Christmas giveaway over the past couple of weeks, like no one is actually paying me to say this. I genuinely feel like it is so innovative. It's such an innovative product and it's really at the forefront of moving the industry forward, which sometimes can feel like it's not moving forward. This, so. is, this is what's happening. This is exactly the, the position you're finding yourself in right now is the position I find myself in all the time mm. because – I would plug this anyway. Yeah. Like I, I work for the company now, but I work for the company because I genuinely because I know dance so well and I genuinely believe in the product and genuinely love the product and wear the product myself. Yeah. I've felt the differences, I've seen the differences, I've heard teachers talk to me. So it becomes easy to, I guess, sell something, to to talk about something. But for me, at the end of the day, and for Tim as well, yes, it's about growing MDM. Yes, it's about building a better company and doing better. But what drives Tim and what drives the company is about innovation generally and just wanting to have a better conversation in dance, which is why we love this podcast. Mm -hmm. So likewise, why we love this podcast, because we just want dance to have a better conversation. If you look at sports and you take some of the big sports, now not all sports are popular. 
you can't say sports popular and dance isn't. That's not true. Yeah. Some sports aren't popular at all. Dance is very popular. S- yeah, and, and dance and some dance forms are more popular than others. Which is um, why it's bizarre. It hasn't got as much innovation as yeah. As yes, it, yeah. but if you look at <laughs> but if you look at what sport do really well, the big sports, the rugby, the cricket, the tennis, what. The, the soccer, what drives them and what makes them really successful is not just the sport. Mm. Yes, the sport is successful, but why not badminton? Why not, you know, netball's growing now. Um, basketball's growing in Australia. But, you know, why not, you know, air hockey or something? I don't yeah, know. Yeah. Why some and not others? Well, what they do really, really well is they have a better conversation. They have a really interesting conversation about sports. The champions in the sport become champions of the sport. And when they talk about it, they talk about it with this lovely generational arc. Mm. And that's what I love about it. And, and what that does is it means that even if you're not that interested in the sport, you become interested in the conversation. And that draws a whole bunch of people who maybe they never played cricket or maybe they never played AFL or rugby, but they become interested in the conversation around it what it takes to be a great sports person, what cheating means within sport, what is the morality of you know winning and losing, what is it to be a gracious winner, what is it to be a gracious loser. All of these conversations become interesting and that can be extrapolated to other people's lives, to their own lives, whether they're in business or they're you know, mum and dad at home or whatever it is. You can extrapolate those conversations to your own life. That's what dance hasn't traditionally done very well. We talk to each other about dance stuff, but having a richer, more interesting conversation so that will draw other people in who might not be dancers themselves, might not be that interested in dance, but they then become interested in the conversation about dance. And there's no reason we can't have just as good a conversation. We absolutely can. We just haven't or don't. Mm. And we need to kind of ask ourselves why that might be. You know, why don't we do that? And partly, you know, television helps. If you're on television, then you have commentators and then it draws money, et cetera, et cetera. There's, but there's lots of reasons. But we need to have a good conversation about that. Definitely. And which was one of the reasons why I even started the podcast in the first place, because I found that there was lack of depth in the conversation. Mm. And when you have, if there was a conversation, it was a YouTube video with a ballet dancer or a principal of whatever company. And what's in your bag? And what do you <laughs> eat? And yeah. What's your training day like? And yeah. whilst those, you know, whilst those questions and that conversation is interesting, mm. it doesn't get to the nitty gritty. Yeah. And so, I mean, you've just touched on exactly why mm. we're sitting here. Having a podcast, balanced yes, ballerinas. Exactly. Yeah. So, and and I, the reason I chose balance was, you know, balance in life, but balance in conversation and mm. balance, and it just it just crosses over so many parts of of what this is all about. Mm. So, yeah, and I think that's why I, you know, I have been approached in the past by companies like, oh, this podcast thing is cool, and mm. and uh, you know, they've been interested in perhaps sponsoring an episode or doing a partnership, and I've gone, oh, it's not something I truly believe in. But when you know, I had a conversation with you and we had the chat and we decided to do the MDM Christmas giveaway and and have MDM on board I was like perfect Mm. because it's so natural to me because it's a product that I just love so Mm. much and it's a product that I truly believe in and I have all my students you know as many as possible in you know MDM shoes Mm. and my adults love them and so it's natural it's easy for me to talk for days about it because mm. i just think it's fantastic mm. Mm. But and when yeah. we have better conversations because we have issues in dance mm. why are we missing okay the great you just talked about adult dance so how do we grow adult dance yeah because that's a huge market that we're currently missing and we shouldn't be adults love dancing why aren't we getting more adults dancing you're being very successful at that that's a conversation we need to have we need to have a conversation about competitions how many competitions are too many 
we need to have a, uh, a, a conversation about boys in dance. Why aren't we attracting more boys to dance? And if we're not having conversations about these things, overstretching the clothes that we wear and that we allow on stage at particular ages, the sexualization of you know girls in dance and boys in dance, if we're not having those conversations, how are we going to improve them? You know, this studio might be doing it okay, but this studio and this studio aren't, and this studio is doing it okay. We need to be having these conversations so that we can hopefully inspire each other. And you know, I don't have all the answers. And you forward. don't have all the answers. No, that person. But together, hmm. we probably do if we just get together and have a talk about it and have a chat about it. Because I know from my experience of going around to lots of studios and lots of adjudicating and stuff, everyone's asking the same. Everyone's having the same problems. Everyone's asking the same questions. Just doing it, they're doing, doing it in little islands, little isolated islands and not collectively. And that's yeah. what we need to do. And if we do that, I have no doubt we will be able to solve a lot of the, you know, we have a lot of great stuff in dance, but we do have a lot of issues that we, we need to do better. And, um, and, you know, how much tradition is good, for instance, versus how much innovation. You know, how much should we change? When do we start to feel like we're losing something? That's a really interesting conversation as well. Yeah, it's really interesting that you explain the dance scene as little islands because I know certainly when I was 23 and opened my studio, I felt very isolated and very lonely. Oh, it can be so a very, many teachers feel very lonely world. So many studio principals feel like that, that sense of isolation and loneliness. Yeah, yeah, and it's funny since starting the podcast, I find myself, I have a reason to contact people. Yeah. I have a reason and, you know, I will contact a studio that inspires me and mm. I'll say hey I'm Georgia blah 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 introduce myself would you be interested in me coming down and interviewing you and they're like oh that would be amazing and mm. then I'm making this connection with another studio owner and you know now we're friends and mm. and it's just it's such a lovely community yeah now that's 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 evolving and that's just what we need more of I'm trying. <laughs> I'm trying. But um, I actually wanted to touch on because I don't have many males on the podcast yet. so That's not very balanced. No, it's not very balanced, but I'm trying. I'm trying. I'm trying. So I, what I wanted to do was definitely have a balanced conversation about the Boys Dance 2 movement. Mm. I mean, for those that don't know, Good Morning America's Lara Spencer. She took a really cheap shot at Prince George and um, basically made fun of him for participating in ballet classes. And if you've been living under a rock, the entire dance world just like was in uproar over this. As a male that's been heavily involved in the ballet scene, how did that make you feel? Look, it's it's standard. It you say a cheap shot, but it, there was no. Um, I don't think there was any malice or anything in it. It's it was just something that just came to her. Mm. It, it was you could see it. It was it wasn't it was pre, flippant. It wasn't premeditated. It was just the typical cliche stereotype response. Oh, let's have a little bit of a giggle at a boy doing ballet. There's no thought behind it, and that's the problem. And that's what I loved about how when dance exploded, that everybody just went bang, and she was just forced to have to go. Wow, I actually have to think about this. Yeah. I have to actually reconsider this. Um, that is just a complete stereotype. And I love that so many people got so active. I would personally prefer it wasn't called Boys Dance 2. I would rather it was just Boys Dance. Um, there's something about the two that makes me feel like it's an add-on. Um, yeah. But I but I still love the sentiment as a concept. You know, I, I do understand where it's coming from. Um, we need more boys dancing. Boys love dancing. There's no way boys don't love dancing. The, I mean, the fact that they used to do break dancing and they'll get into break dancing, they love moving their body and exploring their body to movement. They absolutely do. They love doing it collectively and individually. I think what they struggle with is 
at the moment, because um, dance is so female-centric and the dance studios tend to be so female-centric, naturally those studios have now therefore been set up atmospherically in terms of their mood and presence to be a place for girls to feel comfortable which means that the boys are going to probably feel uncomfortable. It, it, if you can get boys through the door and get them comfortable in the space, then they will start to explore all the different sort of movement styles. Mm. What's hard for them is getting through the door. I remember back in when I was just starting and I was quite young, even when I wasn't that young, and I had to go to a block store. And back in those days, and they have changed, to, to their credit, they've changed a lot. But back in those days, it was so pink. It was so pink and frilly. And there's nothing wrong with pink and frilly. And pink and frilly shouldn't necessarily just be girls. It can be boys as well. But I really struggled with that because I didn't come from a dance background. I wasn't used to pink and frilly. And everything about that screamed to me, you are not supposed to be here. This mm. is not for you. And when it, and it, didn't, it wasn't just the dance store that was saying that. It was like dance was saying that. You are not supposed to be here. This is not for you. And that's what a lot of studios are currently like. They're saying, and they do that not just for boys, they do that for older persons as well. It says, this is a place for young people, young people only. This is a place for young girls only. So they're very specific. So studios need to just kind of just gently reconsider. And be a little bit more gender neutral. Uh, yeah, without, without, you don't want to take away yeah. the welcomingness that it is for, for girls so that the girls still feel comfortable and love the space that it is. But they're, you just got to be a little bit more creative and open-minded in exploring. Okay, how can we, how can we retain what we have, but also add something else and make it more welcoming for boys as well, and more welcoming for older people? Because the studio of the future, for me, mm -hmm. and you know, I could be dead wrong on this, but right now, I think we share very similar views. Though, the the so. way I see it is, it's really going to be a place for really young kids before they go to school and it's going to be that place of learning to sort of exploring their body and and and, pre and preparing them with skills that they can then take into academic studies they're shown that by using motor skills and all the exploring your body helps you with the skills that you need academically even if it's just time management stuff and then once you get into a school it's, it doesn't just have to be about vocational about being a good dancer it can just be the life skills that you learn there you know we know what they are patience persistence dedication time management, presentation, all of these wonderful life skills that you learn by being a dancer, um, you know, how to win nobly and, you know, take loss and defeat and get back up and get back into the class again. So it's life skill building through the Middle Ages. And then for older people, it's retaining movement capacity. And for older persons that are, you know, 50 plus, it's about warding off, you know, neurological um, diseases mm. such as dementia and Parkinson's and Alzheimer's by continually to keep the brain plastic by learning new movement. Movement is difficult. We forget how difficult it is. Just walking is one of the most difficult things we ever learn to do in our lives. We take it for granted because we get the basics down by about a year and a half. And we practice it every single day. Every single day we practice it. So, so we take it for granted and we think it's easy. It's really difficult. Learning new movement patterns is phenomenally difficult for the brain. So it's all about working the brain and keeping brain plasticity. So. The studio of the future will do all of that. It'll be catering for really young kids to d develop them before they go to school, life skill training when they're, when they're during those school years, and then for older people to keep that sort of neuroplasticity going. Yeah, you've touched on something I'm incredibly passionate about. I mean, you know that with my own studio. Like, yeah. I just, I feel like it's a place for everyone. 
Yeah. It, it really needs to be a place for everyone. Um, and and there's a real richness and there's a real... But that's real, a challenge, isn't it? It, it looks, yes, studio it's very challenging. As a studio principal, it's a challenge. How do you set that studio culture up mm. when... There aren't very many models of that. No, I'm. I mean, personally, we were speaking about this earlier. I'm sort of flying, you know, solo and trying to work it out myself. And I'd love a model to mm. uh, to work off. And um, I mean, that's the thing too. Also, being one person in charge of your dance community and studio, our adult programs are fantastic and they're running really well. But my biggest problem now is, is why don't you have more to offer? Mm. And so, yeah, even with that comes challenges but uh getting there getting there slowly i um i always like to ask everybody um what keeps you up at night (laughs) i I feel like your mind would be racing a million miles an hour yeah because you're always thinking yeah i think when i think joseph brown i think he's always thinking he's always (laughs) thinking and reading and what keeps me up at night um I used to be very scared. I used to be a very scared person. I think a lot of men are actually deeply scared, and we, we mask our fear with a lot of bravado. It's one of the, mm. the problems the problems for men have them. There's a lot of mental health problems for men in the world nowadays, and we know that. Um, a lot of male suicide and stuff like that because we learn to mask a lot of our emotions. And there are cultural reasons for doing that, and not just cultural reasons. I'm going to go off on a bit of a tangent here. I'm sorry. But Th- that's the beauty of podcasts. Yeah. You can go on for as long as you want. There, there are... There are it's it's wider than just cultural. It's it's actually an animal instinct. All animals, if you're a pre- preyed upon animal, if you feel that you're not just going to be a predator, but you're going to be prey, and which potentially you are in the marketplace, you learn to mask your weaknesses. Or so if you're a, a wildebeest, you don't want to limp. Mm. You don't want to be the oldest one or the youngest one or the one that's limping because that's the one the predator is going to hunt down. And that extrapolates to all animals. So all animals learn to mask pain and learn to mask fear or not necessarily fear but learn to mask that pain and mask vulnerability and men do that a lot in our society and um and you know so i think we're all susceptible to that to some degree and i and i'm sure i am as well even though i've had a life in the arts and i like to think of myself as more progressive and i do embrace vulnerability and trying to be vulnerable and open and i think that's helped me over the years and i think i'm less scared of things now than I've ever been in my life. As you get older, you I think you naturally become less. Or maybe that's not true, but maybe it's just where I'm at at the moment. Maybe I'll become more fearful again of different things. Maybe mortality will start. I'll start to really think about more, my mortality as I get older. Um, but at the moment, I'm in a place where I feel less scared about anything. I'm quite happy to put myself into discomfort. But I still have that parental terror about my kids, the the future, the world that we're leaving for them probably keeps me up at night. Yeah. And just am I preparing them enough? How do I prepare them enough? I don't even know what the world they're going to face is going to be, so then how do I prepare them for that? Um, I just try to love them as much as I can so that they've got a really strong sense of support in their core, um, that they know they're deeply loved um, and therefore have that really strong con- sense of connection and bond and hope that their own survival instincts are going to get them through for whatever the world dishes out. But that probably keeps me up at night. I don't know where, you know, when you if you do read and look at the world and kind of project forward, it is really, really hard to know where things are going. And uh, so what keeps me up at night? 
The probably just that's probably the only thing that scares me is is is, is my that 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 that's motivated by love that 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 love for my kids um also takes me can take me to a place of terror so and that's the only thing in the world that does every female listener just fell in love with you a little oh. bit, joseph oh, God. no <laughs> look i i i think the fact that you're worried hmm. makes you an incredible parent and i think the fact that you're worried and the fact fact that that's keeping you up at night means that you're doing a really good job oh i hope so i, hope I, so. I definitely just cro- I, th- I think with any parent will do you you're just crossing your fingers and uh parenting sounds exhausting <laughs> you just it, well it's 24 <laughs> 7 it's never it's never going to stop it's 24 think, 7 and it's never going to stop even if they're yeah. 50 you never you know you're never going to stop yeah worrying i know i always tell mom stop so, worrying about us she goes georgia it, it never stops it never and stops. it will never stop until no. i'm dead and i'm like okay and you wouldn't want it to stop no that's the problem you wouldn't want it to stop you never want that because that it comes from that comes from a place of love the most interesting exciting you know bizarre love and you just wouldn't want it to stop so it's just like well my last question i always ask everyone being the balanced ballerina's podcast what is your number one tip for leading a balanced life joseph <laughs> I've stumped you with the two. With the two, oh, easy, I thought they were easy questions. Yeah. Um. One tip for I don't. Sometimes I wonder if I am leading a balanced life. Um. That's most people's responses when I ask. Yeah. I, I guess I try to just be. It's just trying to be as aware, aware of what's going on in my body as possible, aware of what's going on in my. And I always come back to my body because. I, I think everything I can see stuff expressed. I can see all my thoughts and all my emotions, and therefore all my tension expressed through my body. So I always check in with my body, and whether it's injuries that are starting to flare up, it's fatigue that's coming into my body. I know it's the, it's the one place I can. I always say this: it's the one place you can change. It's really hard to change a thought. It's really hard to change an emotion, but you can change things in your body. You can release off the tension. You can breathe deeper. And by doing those things in your body, you can stop the cycle of that goes into thoughts and emotions. So I guess my number one tip is I always just check in. Check in with yourself. I check in with my body and just go, where's the tension? Where's my breath? I like that. I haven't been I haven't had someone say that yet, so oh. There you go. You've brought us an original tip. (laughs) Thank you so much, Joseph. I'm so glad that we finally got to sit down and do this because it's been pretty much since I started the podcast, I've been like, hey, you free? (laughs) So thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. It was a joy. Thank you. Did you enjoy that? I think especially if you're a young dancer that also loves dabbling in acting and drama and all sorts. Joseph's story was a really great example of how you can kind of do it all. So I hope you enjoyed that. If you want to connect with Joseph, you can actually find him on Instagram. He is at josephbrown69. Um, And then as always, you can find me at The Balanced Ballerina or the podcast Instagram, which is at Balanced Ballerinas. We also have a private Facebook group. So go onto the Facebook page and join the private group where we have lots of chats and share things. So... Um, feel free to join us there. Have a fantastic week, everybody.